So are we ready for the word? Yes. Hallelujah. I love to teach the word. I love it. I love to go in the scriptures. I love to put it together. I love the study. I love the preparation. I literally sat from yesterday morning early until midnight last night, just going through the word. And I treasure it. I value it. I, I think it's such an honor to be able to have the word and to be able to study the word. We need to be a people who give ourselves to the word. Amen? Amen. Because by them we have life. By them we have encouragement. You know, by the scriptures we have examples. We have positive examples and negative examples. But anyway, that's not what I want to share. I want to just talk a little bit about, obviously, it's um, Resurrection Sunday. Great miracle that happened. It's amazing that the Passover time could have been and probably initially, it was the worst time of the disciples' lives. Yeah. That Friday, whenever it was, Thursday evening, Friday, the Saturday, it must have been horrendous for them. Yeah. Because all that Jesus said, all that he claimed, apparently had come to a sudden end. It was over. Someone that they'd committed their lives to, they'd left families, they'd left homes, they'd left businesses. And they'd followed and devoted and committed their lives to this man, believing him to be the Messiah. And now he dies a cruel death. And um, the amazing thing about it is when you look at scriptures, there are so many things. And I'm finding it with the book that I'm writing on the end times. But, and I've discovered so many things that were not apparent in my reading before. But one of the things that at the Last Supper in John eleven thirty, and I have mentioned this before, in John eleven thirty, it talks about, you know, after Jesus had said to the disciples, someone is going to betray me. Yeah. Someone here is a devil. And they asked who, and they said, the one that will dip the bread, you know, in the sop after me. And of course, it was Judas. And the Bible says, and immediately did this, Satan entered his heart. It's really amazing that Satan has very little power on his own, he looks for a body through which to work. God has got power without us, but he also expresses his power through a body. Isn't amazing? And so he sends his spirit to come and dwell in us, and so we become the body of Christ, and now we become the expression. It's interesting that in Hebrew thought, often when they refer to Satan or when they refer to leaders who are evil, they become the personification of Satan. Yeah. And it's very interesting. So, but anyway, so, you know, Satan enters his heart. But then John 13, 30 says this, very poignant. He goes out. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And, you know, he didn't have to say this. But then why does John add, and it was night? Because, you know, when they came to arrest Jesus, Jesus said, this is your hour when darkness reigns. And so it's very interesting that the enemy always uses the opportunity of darkness. He uses darkness to his advantage. Isn't it amazing, even now for us, that things always seem worse at night than in the day? You know, when there's an absence of light, things seem worse. But when the light is there... Things seem better. 
And so one of the great things about the resurrection of Jesus was that there was a period where it's like the light went out and it seemed like darkness reigned, darkness ruled. John makes the observation in John 1 that when Jesus came, it says that he was the light and that light was the life of all men. It's amazing about, you know, the power of light. And so the light is the life of men. It was also later on in John chapter 20 and verse 21, it says the first day of the week. Everyone say the first day. Okay. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark. And again, the Holy Spirit makes note unto the sepulcher and see the stone taken away from the sepulcher. And it was only later they discovered that Jesus had risen and been resurrected from the dead. And it was like, you know, the light is coming back on. Amen. And so when we start to look at the crucifixion, we start to realize that there very much was the backdrop of the crucifixion. His death and burial and his resurrection is set against the backdrop of light versus darkness. Amen. So you know the story that um, when you're going through tough times, we often feel like we're in a tunnel and then we've got this saying, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And South Africans have got such a brilliant sense of humor that they would say, I thought it was a light at the end of the tunnel, but it was a train coming at me. You know, just when things got worse, you know. But with the resurrection of Jesus, it was not a train at the end of the tunnel. It was a light coming. Um, you should talk, because of Andre's Hebrew studies, you should talk, you should ask him about uh, Psalm 24, when that psalm would lift up your heads, O you gates, that the King of glory may come in. And in some of the um, writings of Hebrew scholars and others around, they talked about that light coming into hell when um, Jesus died and the terror that it struck into the heart of hell because of Jesus coming in and then, of course, liberating all the captors. Amen? Do you know that even our destination after death as believers changed? You know, we don't go to a waiting place in Hades or wherever it is, you know, Abraham's bosom. Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And immediately a believer shuts their eyes here, they open their eyes with Jesus. Isn't it amazing? I mean, he changed everything. Okay, too much to go into, but the power of the resurrection, I want us to look at it a little bit this morning because, you know, we need to comprehend it. What about it? What about its truth for us? And I can't go into everything. It's too much. But what does it really mean for us? He's rising from the dead to resume his position at the right hand of the Father in eternal power and glory is the most momentous event in the world where he is continuing his ministry and it's absolutely vital for us. One of the things as you study the scriptures, you'll see the consciousness of Jesus, the awareness of Jesus that developed as he was going. In the early part of his ministry, he never spoke much about his death, burial, and resurrection. But as it came closer to the time, obviously from his reading and understanding of the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit illumining Scriptures, it became part of his conversation. Yes. One time, you know, when he spoke about it, Peter even said to him, you know, never, Lord, this will not be. And Jesus turned around and looked at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Because in other words, it was God's plan. But in Luke chapter 18, three verses I'm going to read, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we are going to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. 
He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Now, I mean, that's an accurate description of what's going to happen to him. Absolutely accurate. Now, I would love to have been with Jesus and for him to read the passages in the Old Testament from which he got that. I mean, it's quite phenomenal, don't you think? But the accurate details, and so it was something Jesus knew. It was something that he realized had been, in a sense, scripted for him. In the words of David in Psalm 139, David said, you know, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, I'm knit together, and and things like this. But then he says in Psalm 139, he said, every ordained for me has been written in your book, Lord. And so it was almost like there was a drama about to unfold, but Jesus realized that the Father had drafted the whole story, and he was now cooperating with the story and saying, yes, Lord. I just want to throw in another little detail very quick. Paul talks about that Christ has become for us wisdom from God. You know, if there was another way for God to obtain salvation for us without Jesus dying, he would have did it. But there was no other way. And so Christ is, and everything he did, is the wisdom of God. Paul goes on to say that. He said, Christ has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness. That is our holiness. And that is our redemption. So he's talking about the three different phases of our lives. He's our righteousness when I get born again. He's my holiness in the sense of the sanctifying process through my life. And he's my redemption because he will fully redeem this physical body in the end as well. Amen. So Christ is all of that. He's wisdom from God. Let's say it together. He's wisdom from God. So a part of the wisdom from God, just one aspect of the practical wisdom from God, is in being buried in a tomb. Now the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, you've heard the story. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's why they were sad, you see. Okay, I thought you'd heard that before. So that's why they were sad, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. So now you know which ones didn't. The Pharisees did, the Sadducees didn't. And often in Paul's preaching, he would talk about the resurrection and get the Pharisees and Sadducees fighting so he could go free. Read the book of Acts, you know. So Paul was a very clever man, very smart man. So even the Sadducees, even the Sadducees were somewhat persuaded that this man who's opening the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, the mute tongue, and cripples are walking, leprosy is being healed. And he's saying all this kind of thing, even though they had a pathological hatred for him and were out to kill him, there was still a shadow of a doubt in his mind. Could it be possible that he will rise from the dead? So it's amazing that a group of Roman soldiers were dispatched to guard the tomb. So the stone is rolled in front of it. Jesus' body is laid in. They put a Roman guard there, and they even seal, they put the seal on it as well. You know, they stick a thing over, and the imprint is in the wax. Nobody must touch this because the whole authority of Rome is behind the sealing of this tomb. And it's all a setup from God. It's a phenomenal setup. I mean, they walk right in to the wisdom of God. That's why Paul says the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. So yeah, in all their wisdom, I mean, there's a whole message just here. And they roll the stone in front. And of course, when the angel comes, you know, 
the Roman soldiers are struck with fear. They fall down. The stone is rolled away. And then just to add insult to injury, the angel sits on top. Probably, probably swinging his feet, you know. He has the might of Rome broken. Jesus has been resurrected. I liked Rodney Howard Brown's tweet this morning. He said, and there's a picture of the empty tomb with a stone rolled away, and it's got a finger pointing down it, and he says, this proves lockdowns don't work. <laughs> Everybody say, come on, that's a good one, eh? And just in that little incident, we can see how in that picture language kind of story, how the power of the resurrection even defied all earthly power because Rome was the most powerful yeah. empire on the earth that day in that time. And that was broken. The stone was moved. So it wasn't only death that tried to hold them, but it's talking about every situation, every circumstance, everything that we can face, God is able to. Amen. God is able to remove it. Amen. Amen. The other thing that I wanted to bring about was that it's amazing to me, that the disciples were not prepared for what was about to take place. In other words, they were not prepared for the impossible. One of the things that does, and I'm going to mention some other things, but one of the things the resurrection shows us, and we should adopt a mindset that nothing is impossible for God. That's a mindset that Easter Sunday should communicate to us. I love this in Luke 24. Verses 1 to 8, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the woman took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wandering about, the suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In the fright, the woman bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, the two men, the two angels, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? Don't you just love that? He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners. He be crucified and on the third day be raised again. I read that scriptures to you. Then they remembered his words. Part of our mentality as believers post-resurrection should be nothing, absolutely nothing is impossible for God. So we should have a mentality all things are possible. All things. All things are possible. And that means all things in our lives. The resurrection of Jesus for the disciples was an absolute faith injection. Amen. Amen. Wouldn't it be nice if they were vaccinating us with faith rather than some concoction? I mean, it would be better to get a faith injection. And, and it affected the disciples so profoundly that they became fearless witnesses, preachers of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the resurrection is not more important than the crucifixion, but the resurrection did validate the whole of the ministry of Jesus. Amen? Amen. So the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about that chapter is committed to and dedicated to the resurrection of believers. Because some were saying the resurrection had already taken place and there was a lot of confusion. So Paul addresses it in the 15th chapter of his first letter to the Corinthians. So I want you to listen. I want you to listen very carefully. I'm going to just drop something in that came out in the studies. Are you all listening? So this is what he says from verse 3 to 8. For what I received, 
I passed on to you as of first importance. Now, what did he receive? Paul received this revelation from an appearance of Jesus, like he received the instructions about communion and the revelation about communion. The apostle Paul, as an apostle, untimely born, didn't see the physical Jesus, but he encountered Jesus in appearances. And so when Judas committed suicide, they threw lots and they chose Matthias and someone else, the disciples did, but that was not God's choice. God was waiting for the apostle Paul. That's why Paul said, I was one untimely born. And then Jesus revealed himself to him. So he saw the Christ, but he saw the risen Christ. Is that okay? And in one of his appearances, Jesus explains to him about the resurrection from the dead. He says, what I received, I passed unto you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now listen to this. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. So this is what came out in some of the studies is, and um, this is the only part I'm going to give you. The rest, you're going to have to buy the book. And so some of the theologians say, and Andre forwarded me the material, and I studied it for myself. You know, often we preach that. The first person that Jesus appeared to after he rose from the dead was to Peter. So if you see in the NIV, it says they appeared to Peter, then to the 12. Let's go back to where it says Cephas. Um, Where was it? Where was it? Maybe it's a different translation. I've got NIV here, but maybe it's King James. All right. Yeah. And then he appeared to Cephas. Okay. Then by the 12, NKJV. Okay. New King James. All right. So he appeared to Cephas. And you could even see the translators translated it to Peter. But how many of you remember that there were two high priests around the time of Jesus' death? Yes. His crucifixion. Annas and Caiaphas. Now, when you take Caiaphas, which is the Hebrew name for Caiaphas, and you bring it over into the Greek, it comes out as Cephas. And so when he appeared, he was first seen by Cephas and then the 12. Who was the 12? Peter was one of the 12. Why would they repeat it? So it is possible that maybe when Jesus was on trial and then the subsequent events around the crucifixion, that Caiaphas, the high priest, had a change of heart, and Jesus appeared to him first. And there's some stories and traditions after that about Caiaphas, the high priest. Come on, that's a good one, Amen. You did not know that. I didn't know it either. Go, wow, that's awesome. Thank you, Pastor John. Woo! Now you can read the rest about the, of that in the book. All right. So we want the book. Hallelujah. When I get back from Zim's, I'm going to carry on with the book. All right, so as a first important set, then to the 12, after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, not now, but when this was written, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared, it's like the ones that are not here this morning. They've also fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally or untimely born. If you go through that passage of Scripture, and I'm going to rush, there's eight critical reasons why the resurrection of Jesus is important. Number one, if he had not been raised, the gospel is useless, because the resurrection gives power to the gospel. If Christ has not been raised, faith is useless and futile. What's the point of believing? If Christ has not been raised, then the apostles were liars because they preached that he was raised. 
And then if we preach that he's raised, we're also liars. If Christ has not been raised, then Christians are still unforgiven. Because it means then that what he said was not true. Okay? And then it says, if Christ has not been raised, those who died trusting him are lost. In other words, then there is no life with the Lord after death. If there is no resurrection, then those who believe Christ was raised are to be pitied more than all. So, you know, the world can feel sorry for us for believing something so stupid. If Christ has not been raised, the commitment of the apostles to preach the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection in the face of persecution and the threat of death was absolutely absurd. And then lastly, if Christ has not been raised, then the rational thing to do is to abandon God and abandon our faith. So, but what is the importance for us? So I'm going to just whiz through these quickly. It proves that Jesus is who and what he said he was. Number two, it proves the primacy of his teaching. It proves that the penalty of our sins has been paid in full. It guarantees that God will raise us from the dead to immortal life. There's some beautiful scriptures in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 2.11, it says this, Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Second death, if, if John refers to the second death, then there must by necessity be a first death. Is that okay? So there's a first death and there's a second death. And he says, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they'll be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him. For a thousand years. That was a specific period of time. Is that okay? It's not something that's to come. So now there's a first resurrection. So by necessity then, there must be a second resurrection. Come on, you clever people. Is that right? Yeah. So there's a first death. There's a second death. There's a first resurrection. Then there's a second resurrection. So listen to this. Revelation 20 verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Even death and hell are going to be whew, in the lake of fire. Amen? I'm going to be right behind the angels that are throwing the devil and the demons there. And, and when they, I'm just going to help out with a kick in the butt. Is that okay? Just to make sure they don't touch sides. Okay? But it says, And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. It's amazing that when Jesus rose from the dead, and we got born again because every human being in their natural state is in the first death. But when we give our lives to Jesus and we get born again, we experience the first resurrection over the first death. Is that okay? And then we as Christians might die, but the Bible refers to it that we have fallen asleep. And then he talks about the second resurrection the second resurrection will be all those who have fallen asleep in the Lord will be raised from the dead. Is that okay? So all of us who've experienced the first resurrection out of the first death, um, you know, if we go before he comes, we will experience the second resurrection, which will be physical resurrection from the dead, even though we have died, because that, as far as God is concerned, is just sleeping. But we will not be subject to the second death, which is eternity in hell without God. Is that good? All of that because of the resurrection. Jesus became the living, active head of the church, and uh, he's active and he's directing the affairs of the church from heaven. It guarantees Jesus appearing 
and our full bodily redemption. But I want to just um, not get involved in all of that doctrine. I want to just talk a little bit about some things that I felt very much were impressed on Mark. The first thing that I want to mention is that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it proved his message, but it also proved the fact of his forgiveness for our sins. So in other words, the reason he came, the reason he died, was buried, rose again, was that he came to remove all condemnation from us. It's really interesting that our identification with his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection cuts us off, cuts us off from our past. It redeems us. And that's the significance of water baptism. When God led the children of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land, the very first place that he took them to, and they thought it was going to be a place of death, and theoretically, or spiritually you could say, well, hypothetically it was a place of death, because they went through the wilderness, and they came, and there was nowhere to go, and they were trapped at the sea. There was nowhere for them to go. Potentially, they were to die. But God made a way through the water. Now remember, as they walked, they had the cloud over them, the cloud of the Spirit over them, which was fire by night and cloud during the day, representing the presence of the Holy Spirit. And they go down into the sea and then up out of the sea. And so Paul says they were all baptized into the cloud and the sea in Moses. And so that signified water baptism because when they went through, the enemy, Egypt, the devil, Pharaoh, tried to follow them in. And, of course, the waters of the sea closed back in over them and destroyed the enemy. Basically, it ended their servitude. It changed their identity. It broke the power of the enemy over their lives. And, and the last thing it did was cut them off from their past. Because there was no route back. God was not going to open the sea back again, no matter how much they whinged and whined for them to go back to Egypt. You can't go back to your old life. Amen. And so one of the most powerful things is when we've identified with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, basically what we are doing is stepping out, never to go back, out of condemnation from the past, out of an old way of life, out of the power of that life to control us. Come on, church. And it's into a resurrection life. It's into the promises of God. Amen. You know, how long we take there depends on us to get there. How long we take to get there depends on us. But God's intent is for us to enter into the things of God. Amen. So we get out of. God cancels our past. He's given us a new future to live in without condemnation. The old is gone. The new has come. And we need to continually embrace that. The enemy, I like in the old days, the preaching would go like this, and I always loved it. And I think it was um, Carmen. I mean, I mean, I love Carmen. And I like the way one time when he said, the devil comes and reminds you of your past. Remind him of his future. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. And so we need to realize there's no condemnation. Secondly, it is our power or the power for a transformed life. The resurrection should really make a difference in our lives. If the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, dwells in me, he should change 
our lives. It, that fact should change our lives. Is that okay? And, um, you know, maybe at one time you were a sailor, but maybe now you still talk like one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe you still sound like a sailor sometimes when things upset you. But surely the transformative power of Jesus should transform our lives. Surely we should have power over those things because of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen? And, you know, I remember one of my elders once many years ago. I mean, he absolutely flipped his lid, yeah, in the church. I mean, he flipped out. And when I spoke to him afterwards, you know, I said to him, brother, in the prayer room, in there now, now. And I took him in and I said, now what is going on? And I said, that behavior is totally unacceptable. And he apologized profusely and he said, Pastor John, please forgive me. I'm so sorry. I don't know where that came from. I thought I had dealt with it. But he really committed himself to a process with God. And God really did touch him and heal him of a vicious temper. Amen? You see, the resident power of Jesus in our life should transform us. The resurrection has got everything to do with our holiness. So listen, Paul says this in Romans chapter 1, 3 to 4. He says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So according to the flesh, a descendant of David. But listen to this. And declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now we're just going to hold that verse there. It's powerful. So you got your ancestry, and you accredit that ancestry to your parents, your predecessors. Isn't that right? But look at this. But according to the spirit of holiness, by your resurrection from the first death, we should be living holy lives because we are the seed of the holy God. And so there should be holiness that is inside of us because of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you know this. But the Holy Spirit, his primary purpose coming into our lives is not to speak in tongues, as awesome as that is. And I love praying in tongues. But the Holy Spirit came in, resident in our lives, to give us the power to be holy because he is holy. He's a Holy Spirit. So when he comes in, he sanctifies us and sets us apart as holy. Then our lives need to conform to the holy thing that is inside of us. Amen. Everybody following me, church? And so the resurrection of Jesus has got a direct impact on our lives. And we need to listen to the promptings and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. So, and uh, I like what the Passion Translation says of Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. He says, I pray that you will continually experience the immeasurable greatness of God's power made available to you through faith. Then your lives will be an advertisement of this immense power as it works through you. This is the mighty power, the same mighty power that was released when God raised Christ from the dead. Because of the resurrection, our lives should be an advertisement for the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. So I just want to take it a little bit further. So revisiting... John 20, 21 that I mentioned says, On the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulchre. 
on the first day of the week. See, for the Jews, the first day of the week is Sunday. Our calendar, you know, we see Sunday as the last day of the week. For them, it was the first day of the week. That's why the early church began to meet not on the Sabbath day, the day before they began to meet on the Sunday, because it was the first day. It was the day that the Lord Jesus was raised. It marked the beginning of a new day. It's amazing that if we look at it and we count the days, then from the Sunday all the way through, it then becomes an eighth day. And so Jesus was raised on the eighth day. Creation was complete in six days and God rested on the seventh, but the creation week is seven days. The significance of the eighth day means it's the beginning of a new day. It's the beginning of a new creation. And so when Jesus rose from the dead on the eighth day, basically what he was saying, the effects of this is going to bring out a new creation. And so Paul says, you are new creatures. You are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. Amen. Amen. And so something even more practical than that. It shows me that by the resurrection of Jesus, there is always church. It doesn't matter what we go through. There is always the opportunity for a new beginning. Always. Always. The resurrection always stands as a reminder for us as Christians. There's opportunity for a new beginning. It doesn't matter what you've been through. It doesn't matter what has happened. It's not the end as long as that tomb is empty. It's not the end because God says, I can give you a new start and a new beginning to your life. Now, I mean, if I ask for a show of hands, how many of you experienced new beginnings, new start? I mean, you, <laughs> you were sharing it with me a little while ago. I mean, a complete new beginning for you. That's the power outflowing from the resurrection. Amen? So what I'm trying to do is to bombard your mind and, and just give you a different mindset. If you're going through something, you know, it could be choreographed by God in the sense that it's okay, I see what you're going through, but keep going because I want you to have the mindset that nothing is impossible for me, and this is not the end, and I can do something that will absolutely shock and amaze you. And there's another thing about I want to add on to this is that when Jesus rose from the dead, it was like he rose, I'm choosing my words carefully, but I can't think of one. So I'm going to say he rose more special than before. In the sense that he was not limited to a physical body. He could be everywhere present at the same time. And his body was different. It was no more subject to weakness, tiredness, suffering, nothing. It wasn't subject to anything like this. So listen, when you go through something and God brings you into a new beginning, it's better than before. I mean, that's a good place for an amen. The power of the resurrection. And we need to understand that. So... The second thing is, because of that, there's always hope. Someone say, there's always hope. If there's the potential for a new beginning, then it means there's always hope. Always hope. It's never over until it's over. So listen to what Paul says, and this is in the ESV, Acts 23, verse 6. Now he's addressing the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he shouts out loud, and he says, It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you. And, of course, he used that again. But it was with respect to the hope and the resurrection. So Christ's resurrection is an anchor for every believer to give us hope. Amen. 
It's not over, family. You will get through it. One of the awesome things is, in Hebrews chapter 11, the Apostle Paul talks about the ancients were commended for their faith. One translation says they had established, they had established a testimony of faith. One of the things that God wants us to establish in our lives is a testimony of faith. In other words, God's done something here. He's brought me through. He delivered me. He gave me a breakthrough. He healed me. He provided for me. All of these build up to a CV of faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. Another way of saying it is you start to establish stepping stones in your Christian walk so that when you face a situation now, you can look back and say, well, he did it there, and he did it there, and he did it there, and he did it there. And where I am now, if I take that and project it that way, then he's going to do it again, and he's going to do it again. And he's going to do it again. He will never fail me. Amen. And so we develop that testimony of faith. So there's always hope. Thirdly, uh, one of the things that I, I want you to notice about Jesus, and the whole thing with the crucifixion is that Jesus was not a victim. He was not trapped. You know, we can get into circumstances and situations where we feel ourselves trapped because of our own behavior, our own lack of wisdom, put it bluntly, our own stupidity, <laughs> our own bad mistakes, and all of this kind of thing. But you know, God is such a gracious and merciful God that James tells us that he gives us wisdom without finding fault. It's a beautiful saying in English, which goes something like, you know, painting yourself into a corner. And you can imagine yourself, you're in the bedroom, the door's over there, and you decide to paint the floor. And you start painting the floor until you've got this one little corner left, and the whole room is full of wet paint, but the door's there. So you've just painted yourself into the corner. Now, there's a lot of us, all of us possibly at times, have painted ourselves into a corner, and we're trapped. And it can be because of our own lack of wisdom. It can be because we've given in to temptation. It can be because we've sinned. But the Apostle Paul gives us some beautiful words in Corinthians where he tells us that God always provides a way of escape. Or the strength to stand up underneath it. So he gives us the two things. There's a way out or there's the grace to go through it and get out. So it's kind of like you know, in the movie house, you go and watch a movie, and it's pitch, pitch black, it's dark, and the movie ends, boom, and you hear everybody standing up from their chairs, and you realize, I need to get out because it's going to be a stampede, but it's inky black, inky black, and then you look around, and all of a sudden, a red light, see the red light, and it says, exit, and the exit sign gives off enough light for you to make out the furniture and the aisles and you're able to get out. And that's what God does for us. Amen? We're not victims. There's always a way out. Even if I've pinned myself, painted myself into the corner, somehow, somewhere, there's an exit. Somehow, there's a way out of the situation. And the resurrection of Jesus gives us that. And the second part that I want to bring is the fact that Jesus was not a victim. It may have looked like 
Pontius Pilate or Herod or the temple guard or the religious leaders or the Pharisees had somehow been able to rob Jesus of his power and they had him trapped and the only inevitable um, future for Jesus was death by cruel crucifixion. But it was all in the hand of God. Amen, church? It was all. And when we start to read the scripture and we hear Jesus' words, we realize that he was not a victim, that he was actually a victor because this is what he said. No one takes my life from me. I want you to say that after me. No one takes my life from me. You can be in an abusive situation, and it's multiple, the kind of situations we can find ourselves in. Where, um, you know, many years ago, Amy was going out with a young man, and he was very broken, very needy. And um, the only way that I can describe it was I watched him take away my daughter's soul. And it was like he so, through his manipulations, he so took her over that she lost her personality. She lost her character. And I was literally watching. This is my words, and this is my words too, because I did an intervention and rescued her. And I said to her, it's like in front of my eyes, I'm watching my daughter lose her life and die. And the enemy and situations and control freaks, you know, and all of these kinds of things. And the devil is a control freak of note. Can take your life and take the power of your life away from you. But so Jesus says, no one takes my life from me because of what was in him. So come on, I want you to say it. No one takes my life. No one takes my life from me. No one has the power to take your life because of the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus. He said, it's not taken from me. He says, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. The command I received from my Father. He also said this in Matthew 26, 53 and 54. Do you think that I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Listen, only one was required. But, you know, if, you know I mean, one killed 75,000 Assyrian troops and didn't build up a sweat. So, I mean, 12 legions of angels could have just dusted the whole earth, you know? And so he said, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? There is a way out. Come on, church, it doesn't matter what we go through. The final chapter of your drama, the story of your life is not over. It's not being played out yet because God has the final say. The fourth thing that I want to bring out, it shows us that we can have a particular attitude during whatever we're going through. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead after living a perfect, sinless life, the only conclusion we could draw is that in the end, evil has more power than good and will ultimately triumph. The crucifixion and resurrection powerfully demonstrate God's mercy and judgment, truth and good will always triumph. I think what we need to do is refer the devil to a few cops and robbers movies. Let him sit down and see 
in the end, the bad guy loses. Because he's so thick, he still thinks he can win, even after the crucifixion. And that is because of the crushing of his head by the feet of Jesus, or the foot of Jesus. He's still suffering brain damage after the crucifixion. Come on, church. We should not have that kind of mentality. It's the guarantee of ultimate justice. Wickedness is not going to win this world. Putin has overstepped the mark. Every empire, every leader that overstepped the mark was judged and they fell never to rise again. Every single one. So the fifth thing, and I'm going to rush through this quickly as well. Hebrews 12.2, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. So listen, church. For the joy that was set before him. He endured unbearable suffering, unbelievable suffering. If any one of us, or if we were there at the crucifixion, we would have wept, we might have fainted, we could have been throwing up, we would have probably been ripping our own hair out, we probably would have fallen on the floor if we hadn't fainted, pounding the ground to see the suffering. If we had witnessed the whipping and then the nailing, the crown of thorns being beaten onto his head, and then the tearing of his flesh as he hung under his own body weight on the spikes, having to push up against a nail to draw breath because of the asphyxiation that he was feeling, and then to see the spear thrust into his side, it would be too unbearable for us to witness a cruel, cruel death. All of that Jesus knew was coming. And yet Paul says... For joy, he endured it. Yeah. See, Jesus was able to look beyond, and it wasn't like it didn't affect him because in the garden, his sweat was like great drops of blood in the agony of what he was facing, not just the physical part, but the spiritual part as well. But he was able to look beyond, and the joy set before him. And the, and the joy set before him very much was, we must start with, we were the joy that was set before him. Because in John 17, when he prayed, he prayed for his disciples and he said, and Lord, I pray for all those that will believe in their message. So he had already prayed for us down the generations, through centuries. That prayer is still echoing out through eternity. Jesus prayed for us. And it basically began his high priestly ministry where he still prays for us. Come on, this is powerful. And so he was able to look beyond. Church, the resurrection, because it gives us hope, because ultimately, you know, truth will triumph. Ultimately, something will change. It gives us the pattern to be able to look past and look beyond what we're going through and to endure it with joy and say, I'm going to come out on the other side. And it might be tough, but I'm going to come out better. I'm going to come out stronger. I'm going to come out more sanctified. Amen? Amen. Listen, church, everything that we've been through, Bev and I, everything I've been through, God has brought me out on the other side, and I am better for having been through it. We need to develop that mindset that I can endure this with joy, with singing. Yeah. Amen? And so the last point as I close, Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. And so the triumphant power of love. Paul says love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. The resurrection with the entire Easter weekend testifies to the fact that love has inherent power. There's a power in love and that love will never fail. So church, the resurrection has done a lot for us. Spiritually, it's done a tremendous amount for us. We wouldn't be here without the resurrection of Jesus. But practically, practically, the resurrection should have such an impact in our daily lives that when we go through stuff, we realize we're going through stuff. When we are faced with challenges and difficulties and we feel there's no way out, by the Spirit you can start to look and say, there's an exit sign somewhere. You can have hope in your heart because one poet said, hope springs eternal in the human breast. And so we've got hope because of what Jesus did. We can continue to walk with him in love because his love for us will not let go. It will keep going and we will come through on the other side. We need to start to develop an attitude that nothing, absolutely nothing is impossible with God. And that God will use whatever circumstance, whatever situation, even if it seems like the enemy and he's got others to put the seal of authority over it, and you're buried in a tomb, you're locked away, it becomes an opportunity for God to be glorified when the stone that is part of your tomb is rolled away and he brings you out victorious. The God then gets the glory. The good is yours. The glory is God's. Amen? So the power of the resurrection. Let's just bow our heads and just begin to thank the Lord for the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus. Father, we just want to thank you this morning for resurrection power. Thank you that you rose from the dead. Thank you that it has got practical, practical application for us. Father, and I want to pray for everyone here. And I pray, Lord, that no condemnation from the past will ever hold on to them. That, Lord, we will all realize the crucifixion The resurrection of Jesus changed everything, changed our lives. There's a BC and an AD. The old is gone. The new has come. We can walk in the power of a forgiven, no condemnation life. And Father, I pray that this year, the remainder of this year, this year until next Easter, will be a powerful time of the spirit of holiness transforming us in our identity as sons and daughters of the Most High God. Lord, I want to thank you where there's concerns about the future, concerns about what is ahead. Lord, you will just continue to show us that you're merciful, that you're a just God, and that good will triumph. Father, we thank you for it. And personally in our lives, we thank you for it. Lord, we bless you. May this weekend continue to be a weekend where we celebrate, remember, focus on the finished work of Jesus. And I bless you for it, Lord, in the name of Jesus.
we all agreed said, Amen, Amen.